All right. Hi, it's Zane Horowitz at the Oregon Poison Center with our podcast, uh, Journal Club, for July 2008, uh, talking about a uh, topical, no pun intended, topic here, DEET and the other insect repellents. We're going to start off with some historical data from the 80s on, you know, do poison centers get called on these items and how often. We're going to start with our farm uh, resident here, uh, Beryl. So we'll let you talk about the article by... Viltry. There's a retrospective analysis of cost to poison centers, 42 poison centers across the country, um, exposure to deep um, between the years of 1985 to 1989. Um, during that time period, the sales of deep products increased by 130%, but calls to poison centers increased um, by 265%. Um, the data from this um, article was comprised of data collected from poison centers in 42 states um, and represented about 180 million people. This study analyzed 9,000 human exposures, uh, mainly occurring in preschool children, and found that um, the um, most likely um, exposures to cause um, Symptoms were those that involved um, ocular exposures or um, inhalations, and least likely to occur um, if they were exposed from ingestion. There was only one death that occurred, and that was an intentional um, ingestion of an ounce um, solution of deep. Um, and there does not appear to be any evidence. Um, that the concentration of DEET has an effect on the severity of the symptoms um, following exposure. Um, most, most of the products involved um, contain about 11 to 15, 50% concentrations of DEET, and most had um, minimal, um, minimal or minor effects. And the um, adverse effects, um, mainly found in this article, appear to be adverse effects that were related to their route of exposure rather than age, gender, or the concentration of deep um, that was exposed. And that was the main conclusion from the article. Yeah. Yeah, this is kind of an interesting little historical piece, although it gets often quoted in some of the other articles we'll talk about. This was sort of the precursor of now the NPDS system before it was even the test system. It was even called the NDCS, or the initials sort of come around. It basically looked at that time there were 71 poison centers in the country, and they just kind of took all their nationalized data and the typical reports that get generated from this and looked at it in between 85 and 89, and uh, interestingly enough, the number of sales of DEET went up quite exponentially from like 30 million to 39 million over the course of that time. And the percentage of calls went up disproportionately uh, to the increase in sales. So um, they speculate that uh, perhaps it had something to do with increased awareness as the number of case reports of bad out uh, outcomes with DEET had been in the literature at about that same time. Although we have to mention that one of the authors actually worked for S.C. Johnson's, which was the manufacturer of DEET at the time, I think, or at least one of the products that made DEET. So I think they were trying to explain away why their product is safe. But as we'll see, it 
probably relatively is. So let's take a, let's take a look around at some of the different aspects of DEET, which is probably the most popular insect repellent in the United States. Start out with an article about kids and pregnant women and a little bit of a review on DEET. Um, so let Chad talk about that. So this is an article from the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Uh, and the article is a review article uh, called Deep-Based Insect Retellant Safety Implications for Children and Pregnant and Lactating Women. Uh, so the article basically uh, starts with uh, m- most la- widely used insect re- repellent in the world is DEET. Um, and became on the market. It was used in the, by the U.S. military in 1946 and has been used in formulations of anywhere from 5 to 100% formulations since then. Uh, they've gone on to find that the formulations really uh, plateau as far as the duration of action at about 50%. So uh, the Canadian authorities have, have topped out their formulations to be, uh, I believe, no higher than 40%. Um, so, so one of the main problems that they believed was going on with this is that there have been case reports of seizures associated with the However, um, only 10 reports describing seizures in children following dermal applications of DEET were published in almost 50 years since DEET's been available. So that's with a seizure disorder um, uh, occurring 3% to 5% of children and an estimated 23 to 29% of all children um, using DEET. Um, it, it wouldn't be surprising to see a few case studies um, that would would be involved in this. So, um, so it's not really it's not really believed that this is necessarily a causative causative thing. Um, so, for and then in further investigation, a large scale population study on safety of DEET was published in two thousand two, based on data collected by American Association of Poison Control Centers. Um, and which is sort of a reiteration of the study we just talked right. about, but looked at 93 to 97. Right. So, yeah. And then, so then after that, they, they basically found that, that within, within accidental ingestions uh, and exposures, um, actually this was accidental exposures to, to dermally exposed children, analysis of the severity of adverse events revealed that the infants and children had lower rates of each the moderate and severe and fatal events than adults did. Um, overall, children experienced more of the less severe outcomes and adults experienced more of the worst outcomes associated with the exposures. And I think you can say that for just about any product that we look at because most children have accidental exposures because they're talking about toddler-age children have accidental exposures and mishaps and Adults are either purposely misusing it or abusing it or overdosing on it uh, with intention, um, although occasionally they just accidentally take a sip or so, but that's probably why you can pretty much say an eight-ounce bottle trying to kill yourself. Right, which is the one, the one clearly defined death that's out there is that one. All right. So. so as far as pregnant and lactating women, an animal study published in 1994 reported that no adverse effects on offspring of rats and rabbits which were force-fed different concentrations of DEET at different times of gestation, with one exception that the highest dose, 325 milligrams per kilogram daily, 
um, by orders of magnitude higher than the normal human dose resulted in maternal toxic effects and low birth weights of, of the offspring. So there was no evidence of fetal toxic effects or malformations in the offspring exposed animals regardless of dose. And there's no um, observation of change in behavior or neurologic development reported. So, so they also talked about, the, one of the concerns about this is, is they were trying to figure out whether they, they should recommend different, different formulations, different things to use other than D. Um, and so they went on to, to look at citronella oils, lavender oils, soybean oils, and all of those were found to have significantly less protection time. The citronella and lavender um, were found to have mean times of around 20 minutes of, of protection against bites and so so and and along with that these the, the these three oils um, the concern would be that if the child drank it that, that they could get some sort of aspiration pneumonia um, which isn't really a concern with the D so um, well I think it's a concern with it is just that packaged the same sort of open way it's mostly in spray bottles and things but these other oils sometimes are open capped bottles okay. but you can actually just drink a lot of it and aspirate so, so with that, in, um, in controlled studies, um, comparing the DEET-based repellents and the other, um, they, they felt that, that the DEET was the most appropriate. Um, so, so in summary, the DEET-based insect repellents are relatively safe when used as recommended. The suggestion that young children are more prone than adults to neurotoxic effects of DEET are not supported by critical evaluations existing, uh, of existing evidence. And then non-DEET-based insect repellents are available, but based on one-time application comparison, a product containing 10% DEET will provide a longer period of protection, three hours than other repellent currently available in Canada. Yeah. So again, a good review by the folks up at the Hospital for Sick Children. Gideon Corum is one of the well-known toxicologists out there. A couple of other, other things I just wanted to bring up. They kind of cite an interesting study that was done, I believe, in Thailand, mm-hmm. where they a double-blind trial involving almost 900 pregnant women and they and to prevent malaria, which is sort of endemic there. They either put a placebo or a topical DEET on them daily throughout their pregnancy, um, the mean cumulative dose of DEET for the ones that got DEET of, of over 200 grams of DEET during their pregnancy, and they were able to measure DEET in cord blood samples in a select group of those women, 50 of them, and it was detectable there. And then they went on to follow the children, because they have an amazing longitudinal study to follow the children out for a year of age and uh, found that there was no adverse effects on survival or growth or uh, any other uh, factors. And Really, a study that I don't think we would be able to get away with based on the IRB scrutiny in North America, um, but uh, they were able to do this in uh, Thailand. So that's kind of a, you know, a, a pretty good study saying that it may be reasonably safe if used as appropriately uh, prescribed. And again, Canada limits DEET to 30%, uh, I think, is their cutoff. In the United States, you can buy it up to 100%, of course. And I'm sure on the internet, you can get anything you want. Um, but they have specific age-based recommendations in Canada for children six months to two years should have one application a day, and children two years to 12 months can get three applications a day, and they shouldn't exceed 10%. And I think that's somewhat uh, 
although less uh, wordy to the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation, I think, is that you shouldn't use a product greater than 10%, but they don't really specify on number of ap- applications. Um, so until West Nile came along, people were just kind of using these other things because the avoiding mosquitoes was just a nuisance, but then West Nile came along and uh, suddenly uh, the risk of a mosquito bite went up exponentially. I'm going to turn the mic over now to Terry, who could tell us about an article written by our very own Dan Sudeikin down there in Corvallis, Oregon, at the Oregon State University Department of Toxicology. It's sort of a review article, an updated review article from other uh, ones that have been written uh, a couple of years ago on uh, DEET. Yeah, so this article is by Sudeikin. It's uh, in the Clinical Toxicology in 2003. It's uh, titled DEET, a Review and Updated Safety and Risk in the General Population. As Zane said um, in the introduction, it's kind of mentioned the uh, motivation uh, behind this paper is uh, the fact that around this time there was uh, resurgence of the West Nile virus and was on people's minds. And so this was kind of a review article to discuss uh, basically most recent toxicologic data um, summarizing kind of the current recommendations on use of DEET. And then at the very end, there is uh, another mention on uh, use in infants and children in pregnancy and lactation, specifically referencing the exact same study that Zane just mentioned, uh, that Thailand study from years back. Um, but just starting with pharmacokinetics is, is kind of the first section here in Dan's article. And he said, um, obviously, there's been few studies that actually have evaluated the pharmacokinetics of DEET in humans. And typically, most of them have been just with one single application and then finding how much is systemically absorbed. Um, approximately 5 to 15 percent has been noted to be systemically absorbed just from one application. And typically, in most of these studies, it's excreted now the system within 12 to 24 hours. However, um, they certainly mentioned that most of these uh, studies are limited uh, due to the fact that it doesn't really model a realistic application patterns. So the one study they did mention that likely um, followed more regular application patterns was a National Park employee study where they uh, basically surveyed these employees, park rangers presumably, who worked in hot, humid environments and had uh, pretty high concentration DEET, uh, 71%, um, and applied just as their what they would use and then uh, during the course of a week and then took urine specimens and um, found that uh, they still had uh, evidence of, uh, uh, of DEET within their system, so still within their residual, not really typically clearing just in the 12 or 24 hours has been previously seen in some of these other kind of single-dose applications on one spot of the skin. Um, you were part of that study. Yeah, yeah, I think I was part of that study, although they also oh, asked wow. me to do some other uh, suspect things too. Well, so I can't divulge that information right now. It's part of the contract. Um, anyway, uh, also uh, another study had uh, also found it under uh, higher levels of exposure under experimental conditions where... They put uh, what 10.4 grams of 75% DEET on a skin surface, and as you expect, um, <laughs> they just saw more DEET in the system um, uh, after a prolonged kind of surveillance. So, uh, basically, the only, I think the main reason he brings this up is just that you can imagine with, with doing realistic application, a whole body surface, and repeated applications, it certainly may be in your system longer than just 24 hours in the day that you you've applied it there. Um, but really what the significance of that is, we still don't know. It just knows that it could circulate around systemically a little bit after um, applying it onto your skin multiple times during the course of the day. Now, what happens with that DEET once it gets in you is essentially the next section here when he uh, speaks a little bit about DEET metabolism. 
Um, basically, as a quick figure, it just goes off the key met, uh, metabolizing um, pathways here for DEET, and one is a, um, a cytochrome uh, uh, P4, uh, sorry, 450 uh, hydroxyl or oxidation, and then another one is a dealkylation. Um, and um, one thing that he mentioned is that there seems to be uh, some individual variation in metabolism uh, based on certain isoforms that you may have of the P450. Um, and this may explain some individual variants on, on how much you actually metabolize and how much may be left in your system after repeated applications. Um, uh, and uh, next section after that, I was talking about a little bit of what may modify uh, the pharmacokinetics of the DEET. And the, the key thing that was brought up here is the fact that some DEET has been mixed with ethanol. Um, and that actually it seems to be a, a higher penetrance of this DEET um, with ethanol mixtures. Um, so um, let's see one reference here said that uh, DEET permeated from a solution at 30% to 45% ethanol was significantly higher than that of a pure DEET solution. So I'm curious in that one overdose case of the eight ounces, I wonder if that was mixed with ethanol, actually. Maybe that was right. the purpose of drinking. Yeah, I don't think the purpose of DEET is they want it to be absorbed into your system. The yeah. point is they want it to, like, vaporize right. and hang around right. in a little vapor core around your body to keep the mosquitoes away. Right. So formulating it that way probably doesn't add anything to its efficacy right. and probably potentially right. adds to it's toxicity the risk to you. increased systemic absorption, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, so um, now on to some of the studies on the neurotoxic effects of, of DEET. So we, we heard a little bit about potential toxicity of DEET in some, uh, some of the earlier papers here, but um, the initial references here are essentially an animal body of models, and this is looking into the possibility of neurotoxicity from DEET. And then um, essentially you re review some studies that were done in rats showing that um, initial studies with low doses of DEET did not show uh, any evidence of to toxicity, but when you start getting into uh, higher levels, so some single-dose studies of 1 to 3 gram per kilogram is associated with this myelinopathy um, and uh, kind of cerebellar uh, dysfunction. And then uh, at doses that are really approximating the LD50 of this, of D, like 2 to 3 grams per kilogram, they um, noted some uh, decreasing reactivity in muscle tone um, with uh, also in the mice model. Now, the mechanisms for this neurotoxicity, it's, it's hypothesized kind of two different factors. One may be a neuronal apoptosis, and then another one was a question of whether that might disrupt the permeability of the blood-brain barrier itself. Um, now, there is obviously some controversy on this, um, and some more recent animal data actually looking at uh, a daily dose and uh, a lower level, like 40 milligram per kilogram of DEET, also mixed with ethanol for 60 days, showed some neuronal de degeneration, um, essentially some CNS manifestations in rat models. And this was after so more of a chronic use of a lower dose, not a one-time kind of high big slug of the stuff. But there was no real clinical observed differences in these particular animals. However, there was another study later on kind of looking more on kind of symptomatic or kind of clinical uh, endpoints with some of these these mice models, and, and again, it was a lower dose, 40 milligrams per kilogram daily for an extended period of time, about 45 days, and they actually showed there was some difference in some, basically your endpoints here were this, this four-paw grip time and an inclined plane performance test, which uh, 
I have no idea it involves in that. Yeah, it, it, it ended up having to climb up a plane and then have them grab onto something and try to tip them off. Yeah, there's a lot of these intoxication yeah. models, and we've seen it. There's some GHB stuff that gets reported every year where they give mice, like, GHB, and they, like, can't walk across the beam, and they fall off and things like that, and rotating planes and right. ways of assessing a mouse's, you know, balance, which is supposedly a very good balance. That's how they get around. Um, so, I, again, I don't know what that means yeah. in humans, but yeah. it's it's – it's sort of a reproducible sort of lab animal kind of thing that gets reported often. Yeah. I think the main reason he brings this up is it just seemed to demonstrate there was some conflicting data uh, in regards to exactly what happens here and a little bit perplexing because of some of these lower doses, but chronic use seems to have maybe some lower scores on, on uh, some of these outcomes. So what exactly that means for humans, we still don't know. However, um, you know, going on to the next uh, part, of his paper here is looking at this epidemiology of reports in humans, which we had talked a little bit about before. And they, there's one case report he mentions of this encephalopathy um, in a previously healthy 18-month-old, um, which was temporarily associated, although I don't think you can say causally associated, with the use of DEET. It was a 17.6% DEET. Um, now, the details about the nature of the application, such as frequency and where it was applied, weren't provided. Um, but uh, essentially, um, the uh, one case report uh, mentioned that uh, this kid uh, had had a potential role of ethanol, and he kind of mentioned this as a kind of a confounding factor potentially in the application of this particular type of DEET um, because these spectrum of symptoms that have been associated with DEET in infants, including ataxia and respiratory depression, coma, and seizures, such as what you might see in encephalopathy. Um, certainly warrants an additional consideration of other solvents such as the ethanol. Um, so it wasn't really proven that that was uh, the cause in this particular case, but it's something for consideration, maybe kind of a confounding factor with this one case report. Um, there was also a case of encephalopathy in adults, he mentions, um, but this is also um, in an individual. It arose on a hot, humid afternoon. Uh, this guy presented with confusion and combativeness. He apparently did not have an elevated body temperature, and evaluation for infectious metabolic and other toxic etiologies were unremarkable. Um, but he uh, had supportive management, essentially, um, including intubation, and a normal uneventful neurologic recovery followed. And it just so happened that a serum specimen collected 16 hours after presentation revealed that he had 1.6 micrograms per mil of DEET in his system. Um, so, DEET in the serum after normal application and a previous investigation of volunteer subjects applying approximately one gram of DEET to the skin measured peak serum concentrations of 0.24 to 1 mic, uh, microgram per mil. So, uh, maybe a little bit more elevated than what you would expect, but whether that indeed causes symptoms or not, it's again hard to know. Certainly, yeah, no, extra- extrapolating backwards, it may yeah. have certainly been higher 16 hours right. earlier when he mm-hmm. presented. So, I mean, little, you know, I mean, the little incremental case reports yeah. like that are somewhat supportive of that. There is, with certainly large applications, large concentrations, as it's suggesting that there is some CNS effects from it. Right. Um, and he kind of goes over some of the poison control center data, although I don't think this, this section is really profoundly different from... Is this the same study that he's referencing here that we just went over? Uh, was that the one we just reviewed, but it was the one that was in the uh, Gideon Corrin article. So article. probably yeah. skip through that. And then basically kind of closes with regulations and recommendations. Um, and basically, uh, uh, again, it, it, he kind of basically outlines the rationale on uh, establishing kind of the percentages as far as how concentrated DEET is for adults and also for children uh, mentions kind of initially based on 
kind of LD50 um, levels, and then uh, basically the estimated margin of exposure. So um, this regulatory agency in Canada basically wanted to make sure that the margin of exposure, depending on the concentration that you gave to someone, that you would have a factor of 100 in that the estimated dose or ratio, the estimated dose um, that you gave the child to the level that it would require to have an adverse effect given from animal toxicology studies. So you would want to make sure that whatever dose you gave to, say, a young child is definitely going to be 100 times less than a level that you would expect to cause uh, toxic effects in an animal population. Um, so that was one of uh, the rationales in, as far as developing just the concentrations um, that, were, that were recommended, and this kind of addresses a previous thing that Chad had mentioned where this is kind of how Canada established that they would um, no more than 30% deed for uh, an adult application. Now, the reason for the 10% or less uh, in the pediatric application, I, this is something Zane just mentioned earlier, but I don't think it's really kind of well qualified in the data exactly why they you know say 10% and maybe why one application a day versus a couple applications a day. I think that's just... Uh, Consensus recommendation. Right. <laughs> just, just they found. sat around and said, "Well, yeah. what would be a common sense kind right. of thing we can put on the label right. and, and have right. people follow?" And then that's pretty much it. You know, the last section is just about pregnancy and lactation. The key study being referenced here, I think, and in, in the last paragraph here being the, the Thailand study that we've already spoken about. So um, that is pretty much that paper. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to bring up a couple of points about uh, basically this product had been the market, like uh, someone said earlier, since the 40s and 50s. And then um, the EPA went back to it in 1998 and had to do this re-registration eligibility decision. And essentially, there was a lot of research done on animal models and everything else built by the company and outsiders to sort of prove to the FDA again that this was indeed a safe product because up until the 80s and 90s, there have been sporadic case reports of children having seizures with it being essentially bathed in this stuff by over-aggressive parents who were trying to ward off mosquito bites, and that led to sort of the backlash that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be using it. But, you know, I think they went over, Dan went over a pretty good job of looking at the animal data, the limited human exposure data, and, you know, how the regulatory agencies under the FIFRA Act sort of come to uh, a, a conclusion which is always very conservative when you hear these things in the news, how something exceeded the FDA recommendation or EPA recommendation. you got to realize if you just go a couple points over the line, you're still a hundredfold less than a real risk of toxicity with um, some of these uh, agents. And clearly DEET is in that same um, ballpark. So switch gears a little bit and say, well, are there, are there other alternatives? There was sort of the whispered underground that the product Skin So Soft was safe, organic, and better than DEET, and leave it to someone to come up and research it, not only just research it, but at least get, get it published in the England Journal of all places. So Pat's going to tell us how these folks took an over-the-counter product and uh, made it to a major paper. So th th <laughs> this is a fantastic study from New England Journal from uh, July 2002, <clears throat> comparative Efficacy of Insect Repellents Against Mosquito Bites by Frayden and Day. Uh, and this was from Chapel Hill in North Carolina and uh, Florida. Sounds like they did a, a uh, joint project here. <clears throat> and basically what they were doing was going through and looking at all of the possible uh, bug repellents that are out there and that are marketed for that. 
purpose uh, to see if there were any alternatives that were potentially safer, more natural, more, and would it be as effective as DEET is. Uh, so th their introduction is stuff that we've already gone over for the most part. The only thing that they mentioned, they mentioned it a little bit later, but one of the things that scares people about DEET is it's a plasticizer and it dissolves and you have a plastic that it gets on if it's in a high enough concentration. I've lost a uh, poncho to DEET in the past, but apparently it also dissolves watch crystals and other synthetic fabrics and things like that. So, so they're kind of looking for other alternatives to, uh, because something that dissolves plastic probably it can't be that good for your skin. <coughs> so uh, don't put it on your face or your yeah, long underwear. It, fleece it makes, it makes it look funny too. Yeah, get, yeah. <laughs> nothing, nothing good comes from that. Cotton only. All right. Uh, so basically, what they did was they they took all they they took about what twelve different uh, uh, types of insect repellents that are marketed throughout the United States, and they te they decided to test them. So they in January two thousand one they went down to uh, Florida and to the entomology lab down there, and they used a an arm in cage study, basically where they would take. Uh, Mosquitoes, 10, ten disease-free, uh, Aedes aegypti female mosquitoes between 7 and 24 days old. They would put them in a cage, and then they would uh, you stick your arm in the cage and see if the mosquitoes bite you. <laughs> Apparently they used to... <laughs> the subjects interrogated at the same time as... <laughs> it, it, it sounds fairly miserable. So they said... Yeah. Fun study to do, bad study to be in. Yeah. Um, so for so for each test, they used ten mosquitoes. They said that they chose ten mosquitoes because that would actually uh, uh, simulate the actually United States environment of kind of a low population density of mosquitoes. They said that other studies have used up to two hundred and fifty mosquitoes in a single yeah. cage, which sounds like pure misery. Um, but they felt like that was not really. Uh, consistent with most of the United States, so they wanted to go with something uh, a little more representative. Uh, thank God we don't have that many mosquitoes here. Um, so basically, they had they actually had six. I think they actually ended up testing seventeen different uh, uh, repellents. They got they labeled them one to sixteen, and then they actually tested another one later that they don't that they don't mention in here. Used a random number generator to to, to figure out which order they would be tested in. And uh, then they actually did three applications of each of the uh, uh, test uh, um, insect repellents, and I basically saw what what came with that. All right. Uh, so if you actually look at Figure One, kind of shows exactly what they did. <clears throat> so uh, they want they basically would take the take have them put uh, the repellent on, however it was described to be put on on the back of the bottle. Then they would insert their cage into the arm for one minute, or their arm into the cage for one minute. And if it's bitten, then basically they felt like it was less than 20 minutes. Uh, if it's not bitten, if it wasn't bitten, then they would insert their arm in one, one minute for every five minutes and then up to 20 minutes. And then if it wasn't bitten, then they, they increase the time interval to about 15 minutes. All right. Uh, so that was the first test for each one of the repellents. On the second and third test, basically what they did is if, it initially was less than 20 minutes. They would stick their arm in for one minute uh, for every five minutes and just see how quickly they, they got bitten. 
Uh, if, if it lasts between 20 minutes and 4 hours, they would insert their arm for 1 minute out of every 15 minutes. And if it lasted, the first test lasted, uh, the protection lasted greater than 4 hours, they would insert their arm into the cage for 1 minute every hour for the first 4 hours, and then they decreased the time interval to about 15 minutes. All right, and they basically, the, what they were assessing was the time to the first bite in the, uh, in the cage. And they said that they kind of did some other fudging of the of the amount of time that they where they they started to notice that mosquitoes were landing but not biting. Then they kind of decreased the time interval. Uh, but it sounds like they basically just couldn't ask people to continuously stick their arm in a cage for for four plus hours, or uh, probably would have had a very high dropout rate from their study. Um, and they didn't mention what they were doing while they had their arms in the cages for four hours either. I thought that was. I don't know, interesting to know. Anyway, so uh, so if you look at uh, table one, actually has the uh, uh, assessment kind of the average time in minutes that the uh, for, for, for complete for complete protection times, what they call it, when you don't have any uh, when, when you don't didn't have any bites. So the most effective uh, thing they looked at was the deep woods off which had a uh, 23.8% deep, which uh, gave protection for a pretty good amount of time with uh, 301 uh, minutes plus minus a half an hour. So that's, what, uh, five hours, uh, essentially, plus or minus half an hour for all the subjects. And then, actually, if you look at the top three things there, it's basically off. It's it's deep. So deep, And it, as it decreases, the, the length of time... Uh, is that it actually uh, protects you is proportional to the percentage. So 23.8 is the highest percentage, gave you the longest amount of time, went down to 20, and then went down to the uh, 6%. 6%. So even, even the 6% deep gave you essentially protection for 112 minutes, so you know, two and a half, three hours, which is, which is actually you know, pretty good. Uh, plus or minus twenty minutes. So then they start moving into the things that are. That's not just good. That's skin tastic. That's skin tastic. <laughs> yes. So so one that they that they actually had in there that they actually threw in later was a brand new repellent called Fight Bite uh, Plant Based Insect Repellent made by Travel Medicine. And they actually did this. This this is the seventeenth one that they kind of was released on the U.S. market after the after they did the randomization part of the study. And it's basically a lemon eucalyptus uh, repellent, which uh, seemed to last for an average of about 120 minutes. So actually, actually seemed to do okay for uh, two hours or so. Uh, so not did, was not was not as effective as uh, the deet was, but was was about as, as the high percentage deet was about you know the the skin tastic uh, level uh, 6.65 percent deet. Other things that they looked at in this study were. They had a couple of citronella products and kind of the skin so soft bug guard and skin skin herbal armor and things like that. And basically, they found that uh, those tended to last about nine to twenty minutes. That they actually gave you complete protection before they really stopped working. So really, not living up to the uh, the buzz about them, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> you like that. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing that they looked at was actually their uh, new uh, product that's been put on the market is a couple of wristbands that were impregnated with DEET. So you didn't have to put it on your skin or they had citronella in them or things like that. And they basically found those were utterly useless with a mean time to bite of 
negative two. Yeah, point two to point three minutes. So you you, you got a good fifteen seconds with one of those. Which on, wrist did on, they put it on? Though? They oh, did put it on them. It was the one in the cave. They did specify that. That's right. So. So that was so. Uh, overall, that was uh, pretty interesting. The, the other one that they uh, made a big deal about was this: uh, that, that there's a what product that's used in Europe called IR thirty five thirty five that's used skin so soft bug guard. And again, that one also did work very well about twenty two point nine minutes. So, so, so really, the most the most effective thing overall was deep. The only thing that was non deep that did seem to do relatively well, kind of the two hour limit, was this uh, fight bite. Uh, lemon eucalyptus. So that's the eucalyptus one. Yeah. So that did okay, but not as well as the high concentration of heat. And that's about it. Yeah. And basically their final their, their final um, thing was deep. Really is uh, not not a big health concern. Should And it, since it's not that big a health concern, it seems to be the most effective product that you should probably keep using it. Yeah. Well, I think they said in their final uh, sentence that their DEET is the gold standard of protection. And uh, again, pretty good study that I, I think helped debunk what was a lot of sort of lay press and even doctors advising patients that, oh, don't worry, you can just use skin so soft if you're worried about heat. And It's still marketed out there. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it it's, bath, it's a bath oil, basically. that's good for, on the average, about 10 minutes. If, so if you're just like... Walking from your house to your car, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, beyond that, it's uh, I think. It's, like, <laughs> if you've got the wristband good. on, you better run real fast. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can sell anything as long as it's not toxic, as long as you don't eat it. So, um, anyway, just to round out a few more items with insect repellents, we're going to have Nate tell us about some of the other ones that are available around the world here. A review article on different historical and products in development. Uh, so, Nate. Yeah, so hot off the presses from the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology in May 2008. This was by Katz, Miller, and Herbert. They're out of uh, the Department of Dermatology and Pediatrics in Houston. Uh, so, yeah, they uh, wanted to talk a little bit about the old stuff, uh, pretty much what we've been talking about here and also kind of go into some of the new stuff uh, that may be coming around the corner and soon to a drugstore near you. So I won't really talk a whole lot about uh, about some of the uh, old stuff. Again, kind of just a brief synopsis. Uh, the insect repellents, or IRs, as they like to uh, term it here in this article, uh, are basically been around for a long, long time. Actually, even prior to DEET, they used tars, smokes, plant oils, and, and several other things. And then, yeah, in '46, the U.S. Department of Agriculture developed DEET, and it was actually initially for use in the military, uh, and is now obviously released in the public, but um, uh, that started more in the 50s. Uh, also, again, kind of older style oil citronella, dialkyl phthalates, indolone, and Rucker 612. Uh, the last three, which we don't really use anymore. Uh, citronella oil actually was the most widely used repellent before the 40s until, you know, DEET came about. Um, but now that DEET's here, it obviously provides uh, much more uh, protection. Uh, so they talk a little bit about DEET and kind of what Pat uh, said. Uh, DEET is actually really safe for only use on cotton, wool, and nylon. And it actually has been found to damage spandex, rayon, acetate, and pigmented leather. 
Uh, it's also been those to dissolve plastic, so eyeglass frames. Uh, and leather vinyl. chaps are not going to do well. Uh, and certain car seats. Can't Honestly. wear those red at the Burning Man this year. No. <laughs> the final products don't <laughs> do well. So, actually, not really talked about in uh, um, a lot of the other articles is, well, how actually does deep work? And they kind of hypothesize uh, that it actually creates what's called a vapor barrier um, that is so offensive to the mosquito that it kind of basically just repels them off. Um, and so the vapor's efficacy is actually related to the boiling point of the chemical. So those compounds with low boiling points may vaporize too rapidly, which leads to rapid degradation of the product. But if you have a high boiling point, they, they don't vaporize sufficiently, and so you don't get the, the, the desired repellent. Um, and so they actually say that the boiling point between 230 and 260 degrees, probably a number you don't have to remember, uh, but it's the most desirable range for an effective repellent. Uh, they kind of talk a little bit about a brief review on the safety record of DEET, uh, a lot of what we talked about in the other um, articles, uh, some central nervous system uh, reports, uh, there was one case of cardiovascular involvement and a bunch of cutaneous uh, allergic type reactions. Uh, really, again, they didn't really talk mention the other articles. Um, there was one, one death in a child that had an ornithine carbonyl transferase deficiency. Uh, and two other kids who died that had central nervous uh, system symptoms after overuse. Uh, also of note is that there does maybe appear to be some increased systemic absorption of DEET uh, described with concurrent use of sunscreen. Uh, they've actually shown uh, in a mouse model that uh, there's actually faster transdermal penetration of DEET with, uh, when combined with sunscreen, um, which may you know, increase some concern for potential toxicity. Um, and then they also talk about the number of different uh, products uh, that are available. There's actually a number of ones, again, kind of uh, all, all the way from uh, low concentrations and the low tens all the way up to 100%, although it's really hard to find 100%. I know in the military we had 100%, but you were only supposed to spray it on uh, um, uh, like your equipment and stuff like that. Uh, so the other uh, insect repellent uh, was permethrin. Which actually, if you ever buy any of the, uh, I think, what are they called, the uh, insect uh, repellent clothing, uh, that's actually what they use in that. Uh, so what its mechanism of action is uh, is that it uh, causes excitation of the insect's nervous system. It block, uh, blocks sodium movement into nerve cells. It does that by blocking adenosine triphosphate, acetylcholinesterase, and gamma uh, or GABA. Uh, a receptors, so which leads to paralysis. Again, you can put it on clothes, camping gear, but it uh, requires reapplication after you wash it. It's also in the clothes, which I've been, and I believe once you like, wash it like 25 times, then your your uh, special clothing is basically good no more. Um, there have been some toxicity reported, uh, especially at higher doses. Uh, and that's uh, been reported as tremors, loss of coordination, hyperactivity, paralysis, increase in body temperature. Uh, also, some skin and eye irritation have been reported. Uh, and well, as, as well as, uh, I guess, in another article, there was uh, some reproductive effects, mutagenicity, and alterations in the immune system have been reported, but they really don't go into a whole lot of detail. Uh, so it's hard to say. Uh, Permethrin is actually also very effective against ticks and actually has been shown to be more effective than heat. Uh, and there's a number of uh, different products. 
Uh, one of the newer agents is called Picaridin, P-I-C-A-R-I-D-I-N. Uh, it was actually recently approved uh, in the United States, uh, but it's actually been used over in Europe and Australia for a number of years, actually uh, late 90s. Uh, it actually has so-called uh, ideal characteristics of an insect repellent because it's odorless. It doesn't really feel sticky or greasy, less likely to irritate the skin, doesn't damage plastics or fabrics. Uh, and in Europe, when they've looked at it, uh, solutions with concentrations of about up to 20% have been demonstrated as protected for up to 8 to 10 hours, so maybe even a little bit longer than D. Um, it does not work against uh, ticks, though. Or, excuse me, yeah, it is. It does. It, it's effective against mosquitoes, biting flies, and ticks. Um, it's also thought to provide a so-called vapor barrier that works to uh, try to block the insect from biting. Um, it's actually marketed now in the U.S. Uh, under Cutter Advanced, and it's a 7% solution spray bottle. There's also a 15% uh, solution, which is Cutter Advanced Sport, and it uh, lasts twice as long. So the manufacturers don't recommend the use under two years of age, uh, although um, uh, it does seem to be pretty safe um, in all of the studies that they've done, there doesn't, there has not been really shown to be any toxicity. Uh, so in 2000, actually, the World Health Organization uh, said that because of safety, effectiveness, cosmetic properties, it was actually the recommended product for repelling mosquito, uh, mosquitoes that carry malaria, noting that under some circumstances it was more effective than deep. So. Interestingly enough, although uh, the um, reference they list doesn't really seem to uh, fit, so I don't know if it. Uh, I don't. Yeah, it was the Connecticut Agriculture Experiment Station. So I don't know if uh, the references kind of got a little messed up because it really didn't make sense. So it might have been actually forty-eight. So yeah, another website. Yeah, another website. Which actually interesting enough is the uh, manufacturing website. So who knows. But anyway, so on to botanicals. Uh, again, kind of mentioned before, oil of lemon eucalyptus, uh, soybean oil, uh, and or uh, geranol, which is the uh, active ingredient, um, have all been looked at. Uh, and again, um, you know, and, and also in several different extracts. Uh, so maximal protection, actually, and they say between 294 to 304 minutes was noted with a 30% concentration in mustard oil uh, of uh, the uh, extract from Xanthoxylum limonella. Um, also, a couple other uh, botanicals have been listed. Uh, oil of lemon eucalyptus, um, which is an active ingredient uh, in the Repel brand in a 40% pump. It's actually been shown to be equally efficacious uh, as lower concentrations, 7 to 15% of D. Uh, so this actually seems to be relatively uh, efficacious as well. Uh, although the EPA states that uh, those products should not be used under with children under 3 years of age. So also, interestingly enough, uh, there's been a lot of uh, maybe some folklore about using garlic. I don't, I've, n I've never heard of that to uh, try to repel... Uh, mosquitoes. So, uh, prompted by the uh, folklore, uh, a group uh, performed a randomized double-blinded placebo-controlled study that was actually crossover as well, uh, where they had uh, people eat a bunch of garlic the day before, uh, and then um, uh, expose them to mosquitoes. 
Uh, and it actually did not really show uh, to be any different uh, than placebo. So <laughs> well, I don't know what placebo they used yeah, for garlic. Yeah, I wouldn't know you were eating garlic, but uh, yeah, no kidding. But either way, I mean, I think it's it's hard to say, hey, mosquitoes, I ate garlic yesterday. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's was, it was pretty interesting. They actually weighed the mosquitoes after feeding on the patients, see if they were sucking up more human blood. Yeah. So instead of number of bites. Yeah. Uh, there also was a second investigation by the Swedish Army that actually did show a significant reduction in tick bites uh, in, in groups consuming garlic compared to placebo, although uh, it goes on to say that the study's methods have been uh, criticized. So uh, further studies hopefully will be coming uh, out any time now that will help uh, <laughs> us. Uh, I think I've think used the Italian Army probably. <laughs> Some better results there. Yeah, your thing. Um, so inoculation. One of the I think most uh, interesting, uh, the most interesting part about this uh, this article was uh, the up and coming uh, new concept uh, that's under now under investigation by scientists with the International Anopheles Genome Project. Uh, they've actually uncovered the genome of Africa's chief malaria vector, the Anopheles gambier. Uh, which actually looks at the olfactory bio- biology of the uh, insect. Uh, so apparently, pretty common knowledge, but uh, mosquitoes actually use smell to find food, which includes blood. So human skin along with bacteria on our skin kind of releases a specific uh, odor uh, that is actually detected by uh, uh, odor-binding proteins of mosquitoes. So apparently that may account for some yeah. people getting uh, bitten more, well, frequently, yeah, man. <laughs> more frequently than others. <laughs> well, it will address me in the next paper here. <laughs> so uh, once these molecules bind to the OPBs, they you know go to the olfactory neuron. The mosquito smells the meal and goes after it. So the theory is that if you destroy these olfactory binding receptors, you may actually in effect you know effectively uh, wipe out the mosquito's ability to tell that there's a human there. Uh, so, uh, more to be uh, released, hopefully, uh, soon about this. One of the benefits of using this kind of technology is that you might not actually have to put it on yourself, but actually just directly release it in the air. So, rather interesting. Uh, kind of one of the last sections uh, that they talk about, although we've kind of talked about it in the other uh, articles as well, is just the, you know, the risk of uh, problems with DEET uh, in children. Uh, and they kind of reinforce uh, what a lot of the art- other articles have said. And basically, you know, causality is definitely lacking based on a lot of the more recent reviews. Uh, so, again, they kind of feel, like, again, that it's a relative, it's uh, pretty safe um, to put on kids. Uh, and, again, they just briefly mention uh, pregnant and lactating women. And, again, they kind of quote the, the exact same study that had been quoted in the other article. So... Um, so I guess as of right now, the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Environmental Health recommends that only children older than two months be exposed to DEET, the recommending concentration being anywhere from 10 to 30%. So a little bit different from the Canadian recommendations. But uh, And again, they also kind of caution on using DEET and sunscreen products at the same time, uh, although they certainly say that right now it's an uh, acceptable practice. Um, however, the use of combination products is not recommended because sunscreen needs to be reapplied after swimming, whereas the mosquito repellent generally does not need to be reapplied. So that was their only caveat. So again, kind of a review of some old stuff and the promise of some new stuff. 
Yeah, so interesting. I think that Picardin is is available, and um, if you don't want your sunglasses and your seatback covers to melt, it may be <laughs> superior to to Dietz at least. Uh, but you know, but the other thing is, we have Dietz been around for fifty years, and we sort of know a lot more about it. So to answer the last burning question is, you know, if you really don't want to put anything on, you know, could you just like sit between two guys who like put the stuff on and get away with it? So to answer this thing, we've dug out a study from Tropical Medicine and International Health by S.J. Moore and colleagues out of the U.K. entitled, Are Mosquitoes Diverted from Repellent Using Individuals to Non-Users? And in order to answer this burning question, um, they had to go to Bolivia uh, to get the answer Then talk about a difficult study to do. Um, this is definitely one you didn't want to volunteer for. We'll get into the details of it in a second. Um, to bring up a couple of interesting uh, points of some sort of higher level of nuances when they do these mosquito biting studies, it's like different mosquitoes have different feeding patterns and some feed in the daytime, some feed outdoors, uh, you know, the Anopheles darlingi is one of those mosquitoes that tends to feed outdoors and some of the other ones have different times of the day, uh, that they do it. And they talk about, you know, using, um, insecticide treated nets in areas with high malaria, um, but, uh. There was some indirect evidence in some earlier studies that suggest that um, there's this diversionary effect in lab uh, studies where if you put a repellent on um, somebody, um, that the, the person, it was a repellent dose required to prevent 90% of the bites was six times lower in these choice experiments where the mosquitoes can choose to land on one arm or the other. So they wanted to follow up with a, another study. Um, what they did in Bolivia. Well, this is what they did. They um, were up by uh, River Lauta in the far north of Bolivia. And there's a confluence of the rivers of Bene and Madre de Dios, or Mother of God, river. And they were looking at the Anopheles Darlingi breeding sites there. And um, they tried to uh, limit the risk of malaria because they felt these were not malaria-carrying mosquitoes. So they went to this Anopheles area but they did, I think, later mention that they offered prophylaxis to all the people who participated in this study very nicely. <laughs> so in the first part of the study, they got 12 volunteers, and they made them sit in pairs um, throughout the night for 18 nights, and they used different combinations of either repellents on one or the other, um, and they had to sit on these low stools facing each other one meter apart. And... Um, around the perimeter of a field close to a mosquito breeding area. And the pairs themselves were situated 20 meters apart because they felt that 10 meters was the limit of the short-range attraction. So every evening at 5.30, uh, the repellent was applied 15% DEET in an isopropanol base or a control with equivalent concentration in mineral oil. And one subject on one night had the same treatment applied to each leg, and then they alternated into different combinations. Shorts and shoes were fully uh, worn. Uh, They were allowed to wash after midday, and smoking and alcohol was uh, forbidden. So these people were just slathering up with incident repellent and sitting around the Madre de Dios River in Bolivia, staring at this other guy for for a long time and counting the number of bites that they were um, getting. So mosquito collection was... um, Mosquito collection was carried out between 6.30 and 10.30, a time of peak mosquito activity in the region. And uh, in practice, they didn't really go into details, and it's because of one unavoidable occasion when they lost one of the subjects, they had to get a stand-in on his pair 
in order to make it statistically significant. You kind of wonder what he caught and had to leave town. In the second study, um, they only used three pairs. I think they were. I think word got out that they were in the in the neighborhood and uh, it was harder to recruit volunteers. They used a repellent that was twenty five percent Guatemalan lemongrass essential oil. And similar thing with treatments and pairs sitting across from each other for nine nights. So less volunteers and less nights. Um, and they did a statistical analysis of the number of bites. So what did they find? Um, in total, and they, they counted this all up, there they had caught uh, 5,279 mosquitoes, of which uh, almost 57% were A, Darlingi, and 29% were Mansoni species. Um, the A. Darlingi landing in a two-hour period during which the DEET was used was significantly less than the number on the control individuals, which was to be expected, and reflected a reduction in biting rate of almost 95%. And there was a massive reduction in A. Darlingi landing on the repellent users as compared with controls, irrespective of whether or not their partner was using a repellent or a control. So basically, whoever put the repellent on was not getting bit. This was again shows the effectiveness. So the question is, what happens to their partner if their partner was either using a repellent or a control? And so the number of all mosquitoes landing on individuals using DEET was also significantly reduced. But um, what they found is, after adjusting for both individual and day changes, the A. Darlingi landing on the controls was significantly higher if they were sitting next to a repellent user than when they were sitting next to a, another control subject. So if, basically, sorry, if the guy you were sitting next to has a repellent on, those little bugs are going to not bother with you and they're going to go after those nice things that are stimulating their olfactory binding proteins and, and go bite you instead. So you'll become sort of an attractive uh, uh, you know, meal for them. The total number of mosquitoes landing on controls sitting next to a repellent user was significantly increased by 20% compared when they were sitting next to somebody who was not wearing repellent. So, in the lemongrass repellent study, there was a total of 4,260 mosquitoes that were captured in nine nights. Almost all of these were Mansoni species. The number of mosquitoes landing in the two-hour period when they caught uh, on using lemongrass was less than the controls, which, again, speaks well for lemongrass, although the reduction in biting rate was only 75% instead of 90-plus percent. And the number of mosquitoes landing on the controls in two hours was significantly higher if they were sitting next to a repellent user um, than when they were sitting next to another control with an average increased landing rate of 26%. So in both of these, it's about 20% or 26% higher if you're sitting next to somebody wearing repellent and you're not. Um, so, interestingly, you can't get away with just hanging around with a bunch of people with repellent on. Uh, it actually increases your risk of being bitten. Um, they talk about how this, once again, verifies that even in uh, the high-density jungles of Bolivia, uh, excellent protection rate, 96% provided by wearing DEET in these field uh, investigations under natural conditions. Um, and you talk about these vapor plumes that we mentioned before from the pellant repellent so it puts this little vapor cloud around you where the mosquitoes don't want to land but it doesn't go very far and then the mosquitoes will probably choose to go somewhere else and uh, bite your neighbor and just as a little side this project was funded by the uh, bill and melinda gates malaria partnership foundation and uh, so microsoft uh, basically was responsible for this uh, bit of uh, literature
in a bizarre fashion. So, uh, any other thoughts on comments uh, and stories? Certainly, summer season's bom- uh, coming up here. It's the middle of it, and uh, we'll see what uh, is out there. But uh, it's probably good now that every other state's had West Nile. We've had occasional cases here last year. Haven't heard of any West Nile yet in Oregon. Um, but um, it's going to happen here soon enough, and we'll have to all go out and lather ourselves and our kids up with uh, repellent in order to make sure they all stay safe. So, the final thoughts, and with that, uh, we'll go out there and have a, a safe summer. We'll, we'll see you again in uh, probably a few months.